Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and the second episode of our four-part specialist series, Expeditia. If you're playing this episode without having listened to the first episode of the series, then I strongly recommend you stop this one, go back and listen to that one. If you have listened to episode one, you'll know that this series is an interwoven mix of studio conversations between myself and Charlie, and his recordings from the field during an expedition in early 2022. This episode, the second in the series, tells the first half of the story in much more detail exploring what literally happened on the ground, but also Charlie's reactions, feelings, expectations and motivations. I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, let's get on with the episode. So let's go back to the start, and actually I think pre-Russia, pre-travel, to... Not to be too boring about it, but the prep. I'm always interested in what's going through someone's head the days before a trip like this. Not necessarily, you know, how you fold your pants or how you pack your toothbrush, but where is your head at in the run-up to a trip like this? Um, well, I've never been someone to prepare physically, really. I don't train. I mean, I was going for a walk, and although it's going to be cold weather, I didn't need to be training. Although, I, you know, I tend to try and keep relatively fit, but... I don't, I don't do that. I don't um, yeah, get all hyper-intensive with exercise before a journey. Uh, the main consideration, sort of logistically, I guess, was just to make sure I had the right equipment so I didn't lose the tips of extremities. Um, so a good glove set, a good tent, a very good sleeping bag, decent jacket, and no pants, in fact. Um, just leggings. Pants, they can chafe in the cold, you know, and then you've got to change them at some point eventually. You're better off just with a pair of synthetic leggings. Just one? Just just one. Well, another one over the top, but, you know, one base layer. Um, crusty. Um, and, and, I mean, that's that's the logistical side of things. Um, once, you know, funding's acquired. The other side is just research, reading around the topic, the area, you know, as much as I can getting to know more about the people I'm likely to meet, getting to learn more about the history of the area, um, you know, what state it might be in now, things to look out for, news stories about climate there recently, etc. And when you actually fly in and land, what, if you can remember, it's a while ago now, but that feeling, all that prep, all that scheming, all that thinking, what do you feel like? Um, well, the... The journey, the flights, 
and the 20 hour layover in Moscow airport meant that I'd been traveling for 44 hours or something by the time I got there. So I guess just exhaustion and excitement about getting into my Airbnb and sleeping, um, which sounds very boring, you know, anticlimactic, but often starting and indeed finishing any journey is anticlimactic. And it's, uh, it's often the way that people sort of build in retrospectively climax or, you know, emotional denouement um, to, to, to their journeys and sort of have to build that narrative later, um, which I think, given I'm just saying this, I probably don't do or at least don't do well. But normally the beginning and the end of a journey for me is, is like you just, like before you know what's happening, you're starting and you're doing it. And before you know what's happening, it's over and you're home or in prison. Um, so... I arrived and started, you know, immediately started sort of gathering food and meeting the couple of people I'd made contact with on couch surfing and having a little look around the town, getting hold of a few items of gear that I either couldn't get in the UK or couldn't fly with, like um, sort of flares, anti-bear flares and uh, stuff like that. Um, but although it was three days after I arrived that the invasion happened, it was the very next day that Russia marched into the Donbass, sort of, you know, breached the border. Um, so that was, you know, immediate, really, that that I was starting to wonder what other people were thinking. It is uh, midnight at the end of the 24th of February. Um... And this has been my last day in Yakutsk, um, getting last-minute things ready, food mostly, um, preparing all the meals for the next uh, four, six weeks or something. Um, it's been a long day. I was awake at 3 a.m. I guess just a little bit of lingering jet lag. But um, about mid-morning, I suddenly got a little news alert on my phone and... Over the rest of the course of the day, I slowly watched just aghast as Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, we all thought maybe it's a bluff, maybe it's a bluff, hopefully it's a bluff. And now a full-scale land, sea and air invasion is definitely happening. And it's been surreal being in Russia and yet so far away from Ukraine while this is happening. Um, Yakutsk is six time zones, six hours ahead of Kiev and Moscow. And, I mean, as the crow flies, we're closer to British Columbia or the North Pole than we are to either Moscow or or Kiev. Um... But the bizarre thing is that if you were here without checking your phone, you wouldn't you wouldn't know. Um, in, in the course of rushing around town today, getting hold of things, I went into a lot of different shops and I had lunch and dinner at two different um, sort of cafes. And I must have seen 10 or 12 TVs on in shops and cafes throughout the course of the day. And not a single one of them had the news on. This situation started back in 2014 
Then, my son became disabled, my daughter-in-law died, and one-year-old grandson received a head injury. Of course, we are now... And what were you thinking about all of that? Special operation, however it's called, that's French. Special operation. Um, I... I remember turning on RT, Russia Today. Um, so that's the sort of state propaganda's English language arm, which frankly I don't know why they bother. And it's now banned from basically everywhere except Russia and Belarus and perhaps Venezuela. Um, Nicaragua, maybe? Um, anyway, uh, I remember sticking that on and just getting this bizarre narrative of, of liberation and countering the genocide of Russian peoples. You don't want to see a friend in us, an ally in us, but why do you want to make an enemy out of us? The only answer that we got was, it's not about our political regime or anything else, it's just they don't need such a big and independent country as Russia. So that's the answer to all the questions. That's the and then, you know, just everything I heard on there, just bore no relation to the things that I was getting through my phone on BBC and Guardian and whatever else where it was talking about this like mad war aggression that had suddenly just happened. Um, and I think, I don't remember feeling any particular, honestly, concern for myself or my journey or anything. I knew it was going to be more complicated at that point. But I just remember feeling this deep sense of sadness, this sort of thorough depression that what felt so unthinkable was happening. And this bizarre sense of disconnect because people I came across either didn't care or didn't want to know or felt very strongly in favour of the, the invasion. Western leaders have been quick to condemn Putin's signing of a decree to recognise the Donbass... But I've felt sort of sick all day really L literally sick in my stomach there's just been this horrible sinking feeling and it took me ages hours and hours to finally really put my finger on what it was and and this is all totally solipsistic because obviously with the horrors happening in well and about to happen in ukraine um but for my part on this end it just feels deeply alienating because I feel like I'm in an absolutely tiny minority who knows or cares about what's happening in this city of 300,000 people. Moscow repeatedly warned it would not tolerate Ukraine. The second night I was there, so the um, two evenings before the full invasion, the evening that they had crossed the border, um, I met up with some folks through that I'd met through couchsurfing. We went for dinner. Then we went to one of their homes. There was a little sort of cabin in the woods just outside Yakutsk. And this guy, I'll call him Sergei, not his name. Um, he uh, He's Sakha, so he's a sort of indigenous Siberian ethnicity. They're, they're the predominant people in, in Yakutia. Sakha Republic is named after them now. Um, he... Was cut, he was cutting up some horse ribs to cook us. Um, it's pretty tasty, you know, enough pepper and butter. And, and, yeah, it's good stuff. But while he was doing it, he asked me what I thought about Ukraine. 
And I sort of, as I came to do throughout my journey, really slightly fudged my answer and said, well, you know, I don't know very much about it. I'm from a different part of the world. And all I know is that the information that I see here and the information that I hear from home are totally different. And I said, what do you think? And he said, um, uh, Putin's, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but Putin's a great man. He's winning back land that belongs to Russia. Ukraine is part of Russia. And anyway, the country's run by Nazis. And I was just blown away, by, taken aback by this, because uh, for two reasons. One, because it was such an exact like repetition of the state line, perhaps even just taking the most extreme peaks of it without any of the kind of qualifying nuance that they try to pepper their coverage with in the state media out there. But secondly, the... The justification for the for the special operation, <laughs> the war, was that they are essentially liberating, you know, Slavs, white ethnic Russians, Russian speakers, um, and it's part of Putin's essentially sort of white Russian nationalist agenda. And I had thought that a sort of you know northeast Asia, Asian man, for want of a, I mean that's a very broad term. But this guy who is from a, a remote um, Turkic people living near enough in the Arctic who have their own 400-year history of brutal, horrific um, uh, con conquisition, is that a word? Conquest. And exploitation and later collectivization and, you know, paying fur tribute, all their money, everything just going to Moscow for centuries of czarist and then um, uh, Bolshevik or Soviet rule. I would have thought that he would be less sold on this idea of, like, let's, let's save the white Russian people, even if that had been true or the case. But it turns out that, no, you, you've only got to so essentially brainwash people for about three or four generations and then they'll probably swallow whatever you feed them. He also was from a relatively sort of well-off family who I think probably had sort of quite a lot of business interests, were probably party members and sort of in a, you know, in a good position. So it was in his interest to maintain the status quo. But still, I, I had just assumed naively and, and probably in quite a reductive way that the non-white remote peoples of Siberia would have an element more of skepticism or indifference even to what's happening as opposed to being tub-thumping, let's, you know, let's do this. And so this happened, I assume, you know, immediately on landing. You know, you recorded in your notes around, you know, last bits of prep and going and buying this and buying that and you've talked about it but straight away I guess you're hearing this narrative and this rhetoric throughout the place that you're visiting how much did it overshadow and impact what you were there to do from the moment you landed? A lot I guess, I mean I still plan to do what I had planned to do and the I mean I'm sure everyone felt this, just that deep sense of sadness of what was happening and shock and disbelief led me to want to just get out as quickly as possible and start on my journey, um, which I, you know, on the, I think the invasion was on Thursday, on Friday, I, I got out on the river and started skiing. Um, it turns out one hole in my research had been <laughs> the fact that, um, so I prepared for, you know, 
intense cold down to minus 50. And I had all the gear I needed. I had two sets of tent poles so I could double pole my tent for strength in extreme winds because particularly up at the coast, it's known for its gales. What I hadn't come across in my research is the fact that the vast majority of Yakutia away from the coast doesn't see a breath of wind, not a zephyr year-round, um, unless perhaps a wildfire sort of kicks things up. And so when I got out on the river and started skiing, I suddenly found myself contending with um, sort of you know, knee-to-thigh-deep, uncompacted powder. I then had a very draining, sapping afternoon hauling my 85-plus kilogram sled over, um, you know, snow. Um, either poorly compacted or uncompacted snow. The entire river is covered with 40 to 50 centimetres of light, powdery, fine snow, and there's been no real wind since I arrived in the country five days ago. So none of that snow, which I think mostly has fallen since I arrived, has settled or, you know, compacted down into a crust or anything like that. So the progress is very, very slow. Um, so I struggled along for three days, getting really not very far, and was still within phone signal from Yakutsk, or well, some satellite towns along the river a bit north of Yakutsk when I got a text message from the airline with whom I'd booked a flight from Tixi back to Yakut saying, your flight's been cancelled. We've switched you to this flight, which was due to fly, I think, five days after my flight from London, back, uh, back to London was due. And that flight, I already knew, wasn't going to run anyway because the sanctions had been announced against Aeroflot and it hadn't yet been officially cancelled, but it definitely wasn't going to run. So I suddenly found myself with no way of getting from the coast back to Yakutsk and no way of getting from Yakutsk back to London and not sure if I'd even have the time to cover this huge distance of roughly a thousand miles through this, you know, this this powder. Um, so suddenly everything just looked up in the air and I knew that at least to sort out the flight, I needed to get back to Yakutsk, work out what I was going to do and then I guess sort of start again. So I went back to Yakutsk after three days um, and over the following four or five days I basically had to come up with a new plan that held true to the original plan but was just going to be logistically doable so I worked out that if I flew to a small town called Batagai um, to a different river not the Lena River that Yakutsk sits on but the um, the Yana River different river system i could then follow that river which is uh, a road is sort of plowed along it on the frozen ice for three months of the year each winter for trucks to to um shuttle uh trailer loads of coal from the coast down to batagai to power the area um i could walk along this zimnik as the ice roads are called there um i could walk along this river at one point leave the river climb over a, a sort of little section of hills arrive at another river, the Omoloi, follow that to the river mouth, reach the coast, follow the coast um, on the sea ice for another 250 kilometres and reach Tixi. So in, in total, it would be a 600-mile hike um, through a different area, but with you know, equivalent types of you know, settlements and um, should be doable in the time I have and perhaps even give me a little bit more flex for spending time in communities or whatever so i flew to batagai 
which is the world's most depressing town. No question. Um, it's up in the Arctic Circle. It's just close to Verkhoyansk. It's 40 miles or so away from this coldest place slash hottest place in the Arctic. Um, and uh, there's not many people living there. All the streets are just covered in coal-stained snow. Everyone looks depressed. There are posters on the billboards on the walls literally urging people. You know, there's just a picture of a man holding a bottle of you know, vodka and then a noose hanging next to him. Like, don't drink and kill yourself. And, yeah, it's, it's really bleak. And they've had, it has got a little bit better, but particularly in the 90s, the, there was one point in the 90s where in Yakutia, I believe this is right, one quarter of all male deaths were not from natural causes. They were from accident or alcoholism or alcohol-induced violence. Murder. It is small. It is very far from anywhere. It is truly the, the back end of beyond. And there's nothing to do here. There's nothing to see here. Um, people seem just incredibly bleak, grim-faced. Um, this is a, a, a banishment place. Uh, it's a, a coal mining town. There are um, a couple of sort of abandoned coal mines on the outskirts of town, and I believe another working one somewhere nearby. Trucks loaded high with coal and coal dust clatter back and forth through the, uh, the central strip through the town. Um, no one comes here from outside, so nothing is advertised. Um, so everyone knows where everything is. So the streets are just blank and extremely run down and well just pretty pretty depressing. This is a this is a, a crap place for people to live and I really feel for people, you know, there's I mean just what what do people do for fun? There's no cinema, there's um, there's no phone signal. You can call people, but there's no data. So in the rest, you know, in modern Russia, people spend all their time on uh, Telegram and Vcontact and YouTube. Probably not so much Twitter these days since that's been banned. Um, but here there's nothing. You, there's no Wi-Fi in the entire town. I've asked around and people said, no, we don't, we don't have Wi-Fi in this town. There is no internet access. Um, anyway, I didn't linger in Batagai. I, um, I spent a couple of nights there and then got on the Yana River and started walking. And finally, I was off on the journey that I wanted to do. There's one guest house in Batagai, and that was full. Um, so with a lot of faff, um, I managed to arrange to rent a, a sort of a, a new, stinking of fresh paint apartment. It's quite... You can't really open the windows when it's minus 35 outside. Um... So I had this empty apartment with a camp bed and I was there for one night and then the next day suddenly another bag was in the, the apartment and there was a man there, who, uh, a Russian guy, a Sacha guy rather, um, who I will call Victor, not his name. Um, and uh, so we, we shared that room for that night and I remember him telling me how, like, dis he, he spoke some English and German and I remember him telling me how to how ashamed he was by everything that was happening. He said he felt, like, sick. He was desperate to leave Russia. And he was the first person who just openly spoke to me about their 
you know, the the, the transparency of what have happened, what was happening from his perspective at least, and uh, that was really refreshing, I guess, to to hear a a voice of informed sanity in such a um, in a place with a total absence of it seemingly elsewhere. Um, and he was the last person I chatted before, to before I started walking along the river and got on the road, the ice road. And um, I think perhaps the, the fact that we were entirely one-on-one and no one else could hear what we were saying and we were speaking in uh, English. He was due to fly to Petersburg with his brother in a few weeks' time to watch the UEFA Cup final, which has now been removed from Russia by UEFA as a sort of reprimand for the invasion of Ukraine. Um, Little things like that obviously will anger people, but I wonder if, unlike case, many people um, won't take that as confirmation that... um, that you know, Putin is in the wrong and make them angry with him, but would rather take that as um, as confirmation that the West is petty or unfair or has it in for Russia or Putin and just further back up their pro-Putin ideology. Who knows? Um, I've, I've heard there's been something like 7,500 arrests for protests in in. Western Russia now, and that the government is proposing a 15-year jail term for um, f- fake war news, i.e. people disseminating information that um, that veers away from the official government sort of propaganda lines. Um, I think over here in this part of Russia, people are so removed that maybe it just doesn't affect them quite as much however at the tiny little ATM in the bank in this tiny little town yesterday there was a sign on the ATM saying that withdrawals are currently being charged at 20% um, which is an astounding um, fee Um, not not for me, well, for me as well, but just for normal Russian people, um, I suppose to prevent everyone hurriedly taking all the rubles out that they can before they sort of devalue further. <sighs> Strange times. Oh, God, he's still snoring. It's unbelievable. Listen to this. Oh, God. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And given what was happening in Ukraine, on the border, the people that you'd spoken to, the temperature, the fact you'd trudge for three days one way and then trudge back the same way, the snow was difficult, etc. Why did what you were doing feel significant enough from a writing and journalistic perspective to carry on? Or did you just feel, I'm going to be unkind deliberately, but was it just, was it just stubbornness that kept you there? Uh, yeah, yes. Um, in for a penny, in for a pound. You know, I got all that way. And I was also aware, I suppose, semi-subconsciously, semi-consciously, that's probably a better phrasing of that, I was also aware that I was through chance in quite a unique position. And it, you know, I was, I was one of, surely one of the last tourists in Russia. And if I stayed for the three month duration that I planned to, by the end of that, I'd probably be the last tourist in Russia. I don't think the foreign office, the, the foreign and development, oh, they keep changing. The FCDO yeah, yeah. had yet advised all Brits to leave Russia, but they had said don't go anywhere down south near Ukraine at that point, I think. It was only a few days later they did then advise everyone to leave, by which point I had already sort of committed and gone off grid and no longer really had particularly comms. Um, I realized I had this relatively unique insight that uh, chance to get an insight, I suppose, into normal people away from that front line, away from the war, into what they were thinking or not thinking or were being told to think, or were feeling forced to think. And I didn't want to pass that up as well as I didn't want to throw away this, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of the journey, the reason I'd gone there, which was in part to learn about this place and in part to test myself against the elements, I guess. That was all still possible. That was all still on the table. So it, it, I think I asked myself, should I go home, but then didn't consider going home. Yeah, it's like a sort of a checkbox I've asked myself. <laughs> and, um, you know, of the people I know and love and whose advice I value, no one was stridently urging me to go home. Um, not not that I, you know, took a wide survey. You're in quite a fortunate position. Well, it's self-made, but your girlfriend is a frontline journalist, so she's not going to be the first to say, nah, you know what, sack it off, head home. I mean, if it all went really bad, she could make a documentary about my demise. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's the plan. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it's such a cheap question. What happened next? Um, well, for the first week, I walked along this uh, this river, and you know, it was it was bizarre because I was in very empty areas. Yeah, there was it was about a week until the first village, 
about no three days until the first village. I, I spent a night in a village, Saidi, where I, I was taken under the wing of a bunch of lovely women. Um, I believe there are some recordings of us doing a hedja, a circle dance, and them performing some music for me. The uh, the mouth harp, that sort of twangy instrument. <laughs> In their, in their village, I got the first insight into uh, climate change. I, you know, I, up to that point, I'd seen a few areas of blackened trees, which, you know, with, with everything white and covered in snow and the trees that there are, this, this, this belt of Russia, looking at it from a sort of horizontal perspective at the map, is known as the taiga, the sort of the boreal forest that stretches right away from the basically the Norwegian Atlantic coast out to the Pacific via Vladivostok or wherever. Um, so I was going on this quite right wide, I guess, you know, roughly 100 meters wide, 50 to 100 meters wide at different times river through the taiga, through this forest. And every now and again, there'd just be this sort of, you know, thicket of charred blackened trees just silhouetted very starkly against the virgin snow. And I asked them... Well, actually, they asked me what I thought about Ukraine, and I once again fudged my answer. I then asked them, and they all said, "We just want peace." They were they were very there were four or five of them, four I believe. They were very careful not to say anything against the war, but they also didn't sound very pro it. But they were pro the furthering of Russia's greatness as a slightly complicated position to hold, I suppose. But they quickly said, "We're more fussed about um, you know the, these wildfires," and I asked them about that. And the previous summer they and the men of their village um, you know had been out taking river water and spreading it around their settlement to keep you know flames at bay I don't think the flames were right on the edge of their village but they were preparing for that because they were nearby they were in the area um, they also said that they had noticed uh, you know when the snow melts in spring each spring they noticed slightly larger sort of bulges of ground around their homes their homes are sort of you know log cabins essentially um, and those bulges is the 
ground being pushed up as the permafrost beneath their homes slowly melts and their homes sink into the ground. A little bit like how churchyards in England often look like they're sinking because you get these bulges. Although I read in a Bill Bryson book that that's actually just thousands and thousands and thousands of bodies being interred over the years. So that just brings <laughs> brings the size up, uh, the the ground. But this is their homes sinking into melting permafrost, um, and they were you know they they were understandably more presently concerned with that because that affected them in the here and now. Whereas the outcome of the war in Russia might, to some quite remote extent, affect them economically even that's not going to have a huge effect on them because these are largely villages where people herd their horses, cut their wood, and just get on with life. You know, they, you know, if the cost of cheese goes up a little bit, it's going to have an effect, but not a huge effect. And they don't use lots of fuel just for snowmobiles and tractors a little bit, and even the cost of fuel isn't really changing in Russia, et cetera, et cetera. So the war was something that was happening, but it was totally peripheral to their lives. What has been the biggest changes you've noticed since you grew up here? That's the biggest change. That's very interesting. And what does the changing climate mean for you and for your families? There's a little curvature on the surface where the houses stand. Um, do you mean that the houses are sinking into the permafrost? Okay, the houses are sinking, that's difficult. Did you have wildfires in this area right here last summer? Okay, they're pointing in all the areas around. Yeah, we had them everywhere and here and here and to the south as well. They had to put water down around ah. the houses to stop, uh, to stop the fire coming close. Um, so that was my first kind of in, uh, my first community, remote, that was a Sacha village community. Um, a week on, I passed through another village. I had to be careful with identities here, but I stayed with a man in that village who spoke good English. He was from a very different part of Russia, and he was also not a Slav, but not Sacha. Uh, he was a Muslim, and he. I stayed with him for two nights, and on the first evening, we spoke about... He asked me about Ukraine. Of course, everyone's interested to know what this outsider thinks, and that in itself is an indication that they know there's another narrative whether or not they believe what they're being told or have their doubts about it is a slightly different question, but they know there's another story out there. Um, he asked me about it and I, you know, we spoke for ages. We spent a lot of time together. We spoke for hours and I felt comfortable enough to tell him what I thought really. And he sort of pushed back against it and slowly over the course of a long evening, he slowly came around to sort of seeing seeing the thing from my point of view. 
and there was no internet really that we we couldn't like verify anything or, or, or whatever. So it was really just my word against what he had heard elsewhere. And then we both went to sleep on these little camp beds in his um, sort of uh, prefab home. Uh, he's also from a sort of a warm part of Russia, and he's now in a place that gets down to minus fifty five. He was there for five years on a sort of slave labor contract. He'd been sort of tricked essentially into going there and the people in the village didn't seem to associate with him or particularly like him. Anyway, we had this long conversation and then the next morning he woke up and was just bullish pro-Putin. Like he had like had a, you know, a night of the soul. And over the next day we chatted more and more and exactly the same process happened. Slowly he came around to thinking, yeah, maybe Putin's not the best guy. And then the next morning he woke up and he consulted his book of English idiom. He, he, was a, he was a real Anglophile. His bed sheets were Union Jacks with London buses on them uh, and, and phone boxes and stuff. And he, like his biggest dream was to go to, to, to London. He woke up the next morning, he consulted his dictionary of idiom, and he said, um, I have been chewing the cud. Um, and I said, yes. And he said, and you're wrong. And Russia is right. And we need to liberate Ukraine. And then he walked me to... He had already informed the FSB that I was there. Or rather, sorry, one of the village elders who had sort of essentially billeted me with him, one of the ladies, had informed the FSB that I was there. And then he was suddenly on the FSB radar. And understandably, the poor guy was terrified by that. Um, and uh, he walked me to the edge of the, the village Um he said, can I, um, he'd seen among my bags, I had a couple of sort of business cards, and he said, can I have one of those to remember you by? I said, sure. On which was my um, website. Um, that would come back to haunt me. Um, but he walked me to the edge of the village. He then shook my hand and said, um, yesterday I would have hugged you, but today, hmm, and just gave this kind of straight face, and we must be, huh. And that was that. And, I, you know, he turned around and walked away, and I walked off feeling incredibly bleak just sort of um socially depressed you know emotionally hollowed out by i mean it's 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 inevitable when you're doing a journey like this i'm not a journalist or a scientist conducting some huge survey i'm not doing a box pop i'm just meeting a small number of people who aren't necessarily representative of everyone else but you just try to draw the inferences you can from that and so it was really hard not to see that as representative of like that was you know in his case the last chance to like get the point across or to see help someone see sense and had totally failed and I should be very careful not to over extrapolate that but it was hard not to at the time see that as 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 you know symbolic of a a, a greater shift or movement or you know, inevitability in public opinion. You know, one of the things that stuck with me most yesterday was I asked him uh, what is his... He's two years into a five-year term here, so to speak. He was paid up front, so there's no way he can get out of it. He's paid absolute peanuts for being here, about £400 a month. Uh, and he gets included in his contract, he gets paid for one visit home during school holidays every two years. 
Um, so when he goes home for the summer holidays, it costs him two months wages just to get home and back. Um, so he goes home for three months and loses two months wages uh, in doing so. But I asked him, you know, there must be some good things about this place, the, the northern lights, the exoticism of it, perhaps. I don't know. I said, what's your favorite thing about being here? And he said, my favorite thing about being here is when I get on the aeroplane, I sit down, I strap in my seatbelt, and I know I'm going home. And he said, and one day, in three and a bit years time, I'll do that for the final time. And I think about this every day, and I regret every day signing the contract to come here, because it's the worst thing I ever did in my life. And if tomorrow they offered me two or even three times the amount of money to come and do this again, I would never do it. I read recently that in the last, it's about two and a half weeks now since, um, since Putin invaded Ukraine, in that time his approval rating has soared to an all-time high. He's never been riding so high. He's never been such a champion of his people. Uh, and I honestly, I fucking despair when I hear that. The, the things here people believe, you know, Putin only has to put out a half lie. We're just starting to learn how much it seems that perhaps Putin and Trump learned from each other about misinformation and disinformation. And, you know, the first lie wins. You put out a big enough lie and it doesn't matter how much other people can backpedal on your behalf. That sticks. And Putin only has to put out half a lie. I mean, he puts out, frankly, absurd, almost amusing, if it wasn't so serious, lies all the time. But those then get amplified and magnified when squeezed through the medium, churned through the medium of social media. Uh, and they come out the other side, just insane untruths. Uh, I mean, I think, I don't know if I'll ever get to go to Russia again, frankly. I, I don't know how possible or feasible it will be to come and visit the, I mean, dozens, hundreds, in fact, of nice people that I've, that I've met on various visits to this huge and fascinating and, broadly speaking, incredibly friendly country because we are now their enemy. And the people of Russia might not be my enemy or our enemy, but in reverse, it's absolutely being viewed that way. It just sucks. Another thing he told me was, I asked him if, uh, if what's happening, you know, if Putin is doing a good thing in Ukraine, then why, why are tens or even hundreds of thousands of people marching in protest in Russia's major cities? Moscow, St. Petersburg, Novosibirsk, even Irkutsk and Yakutsk. And he said, this isn't happening. This is Western lies. This is Western propaganda. No one in Russia is protesting. And I said, but, you know, Russia, 
Russian media, Russian state media, the only narrative that you actually have to follow, that you, you know, that is fed to you, has said, has released numbers, you know, a couple a week ago or so, 4,500 or was it 4,300 people were arrested in a single day on a, on a Sunday. And if even those things that are freely offered up as truths by the, by the state here, if even those things don't properly, you know, wash through into people's minds, then, then there's no winning. And as I am now an hour and a bit into this next stint, about uh, 200 kilometers, I find the ice road feels like a refuge again. And being indoors, being in the warm, the relative ease and comfort of not being in my tent and walking all day. That seems like the chore. And getting back out on this frozen river seems like uh, almost a sanctuary, a safe haven from the insanity that is insidiously uncoiling itself throughout this land. But you're welcome to totally shoot me down here, but how much was it that his view was staunch and unchanging and how much was it that for his safety and security he needed to make sure to be seen to be pro-Russia and to you? Well, the first thing I should say is I can't know for sure. In my opinion, uh, the latter, but it could well be the former and it's probably better for his sake that I say the former, but you know, I'm not saying who he is. Let's call him Andre. It's not his name. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I can never know for sure, but it definitely felt like he had toyed with the idea of the truth or considering what I said to be the truth and had realized that for better or for worse, it's safest or easiest path of least resistance to just ignore that. And that's totally understandable. And I hold nothing against him as an individual for that. There is nothing for him to gain. And this does stand for all Russian people. There is nothing for anyone to gain by speaking out, by putting their head above the parapet. You know, they, at best, nothing good will happen. At worst, very bad things will happen to not just them, but to their family. And it's, it's very easy to... I mean, there's a huge wave of Russophobia that has swept across the Western world. And it's very easy. I remember at the beginning of the war... Everyone referred to it as Putin's war, one mad, you know, dictator's war of aggression. But slowly that sort of faded. And now perhaps due to long-held silence and the disappearance of protest, because 15,000 people or so were arrested in the first week or so, um, to assume that there is complicity or shared national guilt or something like that. And it's... I don't have any of the answers on this front, but I, all I can say is it's more complicated than that. And whether or not people believe what they're hearing is, to them at least, perhaps irrelevant. Yeah, and we're going to veer into, you know, full political and philosophical territory, but I would say it's... I can say with confidence that not all British people are good and not all Russian people are bad. You know, we're told what we're told, we believe what we believe. and Most you know, of us are good and bad. Quite. 
and it's yeah, and it's a murky shade of grey. And I think it's quite important what you've just been saying. I think I am happy to say, not happy to say, happy to admit that I definitely felt that in those early, you know, those first three days, I was driving a long drive for three days. I listened to the World Service the whole time. By the end, I hated Russia and I hated Russians. That's because of what I was fed and what I'd heard. And actually it was, is Putin's war. You know, how many Russians really, well, whether or not they believe it, it's, it's because it's what they're told. People who are in positions of zero power, it's immaterial what they say or think, really. Because firstly, they can't make an informed decision because they're not informed correctly. You know, they're, they're, like, if, if, to take a slightly lazy generalizing example, if for decades and decades um, there was a sort of lobbying effort to convince the world that climate change wasn't a huge issue, and only quite recently, in the last, let's say, five to ten years, realistically, for most people, we suddenly realized, ah, our children are all going to burn or drown. It's not everyone's fault for not knowing that in the meantime. Now that there is a message there, it could be argued to be people's faults where they're free to speak out and say what they want and face no consequence. It could be fair to say that it's people's faults for not heeding a message that is now accepted by every scientist who isn't, you know beholden to some some sort of you know financial entity arguably um and that's that's a, a slightly crap satirical parallel to pull i suppose but the, the point is that we here are free to take information to parse it and then to make a decision and say what we want and that's not just not the case in russia no and and roughly half the countries around the world sadly perhaps more than half yeah I think, I think it was last year potentially with the the coup in Myanmar that the world slipped from having majority functioning democratic countries to not yeah and again it's my final little political angle to weasel in before we go back to raw rugged adventure um we're not going to do that but we don't realize how lucky we are you know yes things are changing in Britain it's not a wholly British audience here nowhere near but we are losing that freedom of speech. You know, I'm not going to get into what we're all seeing in the news at the moment, but it's worth protecting and fighting for en masse. Yeah, the right to protest. The, I mean, just yesterday, day before, Steve Bray, the stop Brexit man, is, I think, being tried or, or has, has been charged. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's some sort of or- Orwellian or Patelian uh, ploy to silence dissent. And yeah, we have to nurture and protect that. I don't know best how to do that, but I suppose getting out there and, and, and being noisy is, is important, even as that slips into being often illegal. Yeah. So to try and drag us back into your journey, I'll try. Um, at this point where Andre, not his name, has said goodbye without hugging you, were you starting to think, shit, I'm in a bit of trouble now? No. I was just feeling sad about the state of the state of affairs in Russia. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel in trouble until another, I think, ten days on. Um, more hiking, more cold weather. One night in a little abandoned cabin. I say abandoned, a cabin that no one was using at that point, but a little hunting, hunting cabin, which was nice. Um, and then I woke up on my coldest morning of the trip, which was. I think it was like my thermometer was somewhere between minus 48 and minus 49 degrees. Um, 
which is a real hassle. Like getting I, I, over as the trip played out, I slowly worked out my limits of sort of comfort and difficulty with cold weather camping. And the morning's always the coldest time. And and this is in an environment without wind. So wind chill, obviously, in other circumstances, changes things. But in a still ambient temperature sense, any morning above minus 25 uh, is, is totally hand, you know, manageable. Like, I, that, I became, that was my bread and butter. Uh, colder than minus 25 was a bit of a hassle, and colder than minus 40 was actively difficult and quite uncomfortable. Okay. How's that? A little better. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, shit. I've broken the zip on my sleeping bag, as in the tag bit has torn off it. Oh, shit, that's a real problem. Um... Well, wasn't expecting to record this. Oh no, that's really going to make life difficult. Don't know what to do about that. That does not look fixable. It's not even that cold. I guess it's got more brittle with the cold. All right, come back to that. Um, the tips of both my big toes um, got frost nip, so they became a bit painful and difficult. And weeks later in prison, they started sort of shedding, shelling um, like a snake. Um, thankfully, they are all irritating me. My big toes are around an inch longer than my next toe, so I could, I could, I could stand to lose a bit. I'm wearing flip-flops, and Matt's looking askance at my weird feet. Oh, this morning is definitely one of those mornings where I find myself questioning... Why the fuck I'm doing this? Um, when I woke up, it was in the low minus 40s, minus 43 inside the tent, which is fairly cold. And all the night accumulated breath exhalations had all frozen into ice that totally surrounded the little part of my sleeping bag that my mouth and nose were poking out of for a sort of a, a foot radius all around it just everything totally covered in ice and tendrils of ice were hanging off the ceiling of the tent but uh, I got walking at uh, about half nine, 9.45 temperature was still minus 38 and I've been walking an hour now, just about starting to feel my toes, the uh, pads of my feet, the whole bottom halves of the front of my feet are still pretty numb. So it feels like I'm kind of walking on, it feels like there's some sort of something stuffed inside my shoes that, uh, that I'm walking on. So it feels like a foreign object in there, but in fact, it's just it's just my feet. Um, I'm 
at about 68 and a half degrees north. Thankfully it's still, it's not windy. The wind would make today, but it would push it from questioning why I'm doing this to really actively not wanting to do this. On my coldest morning, I woke up with that temperature and I was a half a day's walk, I suppose, from this town, Ustquiga, the only actual town as opposed to village on my route, although the population of that town was only about 500. And this was in a, a, an abandoned Soviet sort of industrial town that was there to... It was at the sort of junction of the ice road that I was on, on the Yana River, and an actual road on land that went off to the capital of this um, oblast, this area of Yakutia called Deputatsky. Um, but it, it, you know, they used to have about 5,000 people, five or 6,000 people, and now it's just ruins with a few people living amongst it. But this was a place with actual shops where I could actually top up and get food for the second half of the journey. But about 10 kilometers outside of town, six miles, there were two policemen in a jeep waiting for me. Well, I guess that was inevitably going to happen eventually. Um, about 10 miles outside of Uskwiga, and suddenly a police jeep drove out to meet me, and two uh, two guys, one was the, I'm guessing, the only policeman in Ustquiga, and the other was either his driver or an FSB agent. He, uh, he didn't show me identification. Um, they, they were, I mean, they were friendly, but uh, I just spent over an hour sat in their car while they filmed out, filled out a sort of a incident report thing and photographed and closely scrutinized every single page of my passport and uh, wrote a statement for me, sort of of me, from me, uh, in Russian. Um, and they asked me what I do, what my family does, am I in the army? At one point he said, are you a spy? This was all happening in Russian, so it was quite a protracted process. Are you a spy? Ah, oh, you got me. Ah. Um, but then they asked me, you know, am I political? Am I a journalist? What are my opinions on the sanctions? And then they made me promise, swear, and this was written into the statement, that while I'm in the Russian Federation, I will obey the law and order of the Russian Federation. Of course, I said, yes, that's fine. I'm not political. I'm just a travel writer, just here for an expedition. I came here before the conflict, as they termed it, began over to the west. Um, and then they made me sign, I think, nine or ten times on these various documents. Uh, and then write in Russian. They, they wrote this sort of three sides of A4 sort of statement from me. And then at the end of it, I had to write in Russian, I have read this, which obviously I hadn't because I can't read Russian handwriting. I can hardly read Russian, let alone Russian handwriting. Um, 
So I sort of put an exclamation mark at the end of I have read this. Uh, and then sign my name again. Um, but the cop was, yeah, he was friendly. He gave me his number. He told me the number of the, the, the one guest house in town. The name of the owner gave me, his, gave me that guy's number. Um, so I should think in about three or four hours, I'll arrive in town and I guess uh, they, I mean, I, I asked, you know, is there any problem? Am I doing anything wrong? And they said, no, no, it's fine. So I think they were just being kind of bureaucratically suspicious. Um, I got into the town uh, and then the next day they came to my door and um, said, right, we need to register you. So I went to the police station and in the police station, they then said, you've been doing journalism and you're a journalist and you've been asking about Ukraine. And so I had the sort of the first instance of what was to happen later in a larger sense in Tixie. Um, and it turned out they had found my website because they had a photograph of my business card that Andre had sent the FSB, presumably under great pressure. On my website, it, you know, it said that I had written travel pieces for publications. And so this is the sort of the beginning of the journalism charge, I suppose, allegation. Um, and it was during that time, it, that was the first time that I felt like things aren't going to plan. And there is the outside chance that things could spiral later and I could get kicked out of the country. It never crossed my mind that things could go as bad as they ended up going. Um, it was a little bit more edgy because when they came to the uh, to the apartment that I'd rented, there's no guest house in this place, um, when they came to knock on the door, I was holding the little Zoom dictaphone that you'd given me and recording, um, you know, just generally recording, chatting. And when they came to the door, I just sort of slipped it in my pocket. And then they took me to the police station and I had this hot mic in my pocket recording. So after that long police process where I eventually signed the, you know, yes, I have committed this offence and yes, I will pay 2,000 rubles, 20 pounds in a fine. Um, I got back to the apartment. I recorded everything that had happened in the police station there. And then I hid the little micro SD card in my plug. And that was the first sort of you know, time I did that. And from that point onwards, that's when I had you know, something to hide. Thanks for listening to Expeditia, a four-part specialist series. For more information on the podcast, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk. 
This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and edited by Orla O'Murray. If you want to get in touch, you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or you can get in touch on Instagram where you'll find us at theadventurepodcast. And if you want to leave us a review, please do leave an honest review on iTunes. They make the world of difference when we're trying to access new audiences.